In uh, consulting the morning press this morning, it's always interesting on Good Friday to see how the uh, officials of the church interpret this day. And like most days, uh, most Good Fridays, I was uh, suitably disappointed again. (laughs) It seems that we need to try and make this day and this event palatable, tolerable, domesticable for the unreligious population. We seem to feel the need to make Jesus relevant. So on the one hand, we have one church leader telling us that Jesus came to identify with the oppressed today. It's a more tragic trope. I don't think there's any gospel in that. Well, then there's more the romantic trope where people are encouraged to indulge themselves in the imagination of how we would be if these terrible things happened to us. It's a foil for our own inner suffering. But that's not the way the scriptures depict this event, especially the one whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. For him... All the way along, and right through this story, this is a story of God. And God's orchestrating these moves despite the free and willful and sinful actions of the human characters that are involved in this story. In fact, we're going to focus today just upon the middle part of this five-part story... But as you move beyond the crucifixion itself, we find that uh, John is amazed how even at the worst, as the Jewish authorities, for instance, request that uh, the bodies be taken down and therefore they must be dead and the usual Roman practice was to inflict a blow to the the shins, to break the shins so that the individual would not be able to breathe and the shock itself is enough to kill them. They come to Jesus and they find that he is already dead. And uh, whether out of uh, mere delinquency or more scientific curiosity, a soldier shoves his spear somewhere in the side of Jesus, probably perforating both stomach and heart and finds that uh, this one uh, blood and water flow out but the important thing for John is that these very events which Jesus himself had no control over were prophesied in the scriptures already in numbers the Passover lamb was one that not one body bone of his body would be broken and uh, in Psalm 34 about the Messiah They will look on him whom they have pierced. And John sees that this is all going according to plan, God's plan. And while we can be absorbed with the human issues and the human agency, ultimately the main character is God in this story. So we come back and pick it up that after Jesus has been tried and convicted of the false charge of insurrection, 
against Rome, although in a sense he does dethrone Rome. He goes out with the impossible task after the ordeal he has been through in the last 24 hours to bear his own cross to a place, an insidiously named place, the place of the cranium, literally, Calvary, also in Aramaic called Golgotha. And they crucify him with two recently arrested uh, <coughs> members of the Zion Liberation Front and string them all up. We're not told of the ordeal of crucifixion, but he was laid upon a cross and nailed to it with his bottom just above a little seat that he could sit on occasionally to get breath. Crucifixion, and the little we say about it today, is simply one of the most insidious forms of execution the human being has ever thought of. But it's particularly insidious for this person, this Jesus, who is the Lord of life itself, because it makes death palatable, that which is ultimately opposite in every way to Jesus becomes his chosen option. You have to really decide to put yourself through excruciating pain to press yourself up upon nails to fill your lungs again for the next breath and then stay with that. So that's the nature. It's either pain or death that Jesus has offered. And we pick up on the story that we were looking at last week that Pilate goes and he finishes the paperwork on this trial and execution. He puts a placard above Jesus' head written in three languages which simply says that this Jesus is Jesus from Nazareth, king of the Jews. This gets up the nose of the Jews and they want him to change the wording to he said he was king of the Jews, or it's alleged that he was king of the Jews, but Pilate won't play ball with that, of course. Uh, that would raise suspicions. You don't crucify for someone for what they allegedly have done. Pilate needs Jesus to be the Jesus who was the insurrectionist, and that's why he was doing his job executing him. He wants to tie up any loose end. So they're not going to get the inscription changed. There's no such thing as, as a capital charge of alleged sedition. He needs the cover story to stick. And so he doesn't change it. And then we have some interesting patterns. We have three little tales, four guards' tale, four friends' tale, and four actions of Jesus quite deliberately. As Jesus, now naked, you know, it's a, an incredible thing that it's almost a, a human passion to be prominent socially, to be appreciated and seen. But Jesus is seen in a way where he's totally exposed to the gawking eyes, totally a specimen at this height of contempt, you'd think they would allow some dignity, but beneath him, those who are guards, four of them, and why on earth you'd need four guards to guard someone? Jesus isn't going anywhere. But they have four guards there, 
And these fellows engage in ripping up Jesus' clothing. They're souvenir hunters. They're probably superstitious souvenir hunters. And who knows what they might be able to sell those relics for later on. Who knows the powers inherent in these magic clothes. But when it comes to his robe, uh, that's another story. That's a beautiful piece woven in one, like knitting on one needle. And so this is raffled to the, to the lucky winner and uh, they think they've had a good day. But the guard is there so that no one might tamper with the evidence on the way to the tomb that this one is totally dead. Ironically, the dividing of his garments again confirms that this is God's story and it's going according to the script from Psalm 22 that they divide my garments for lots. And now there Jesus only has to wait to die. He looks out upon his adoring public to see the faces of three friends, three Marys and John the writer. It's astonishing really, isn't it, that these, these four have the courage to associate with the accused. But that's the most they can do at this moment, is to give him some familiar faces as he departs this earth. And it's extraordinary that just as the guards are tying up loose ends, that Jesus has some loose ends to tie up regarding the law of obligation to family. Breath is becoming difficult at this time. It costs you to take the next breath, and so his communication is very efficient. In rasping breath and with an economy of words, he honours his mother. And as he says, he looks at John and he looks at his mother and he says, behold your son to his mother. Takes another breath and gets out the phrase, economic and to the point, behold your mother. This one is now fulfilling Jesus' role as the one who cares for the elderly. But then we come to really what is the pinnacle point in the history of Israel, in fact, in the history of humanity. Last night I used the phrase that this is actually the hinge of history. And so we must tread gently upon this earth through these phrases. It's not every day that the God-man dies. This is a unique experience for our race and for his race. And Jesus, it says, knowing now that it was all finished, he said audibly, and again, because he is aiming to fulfil scripture, he is trusting that this is all going according to plan, that this is not a tragedy, that this is not just something to evoke religious emotion, 
He is seeing that this is God's plan and he is able to utter the little phrase, I thirst. Where did he get that from? Well, it comes from one of those boyhood psalms that he would have memorised from the liturgy of Israel in which he was schooled. And he starts reciting his boyhood psalm. And he would have come to that part, I'm weary with crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Or later on, I look for pity, but there was none. I look for comforters, I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus is having his quiet time at last breath. It's natural for him to turn to the scriptures and to meditate upon them. He's immersed in God's purposes by being immersed in these scriptures. The counsel of God are showing their wisdom in the foolishness of men. And then he says these words that ring through the ages. It is finished. He's taken the wine and it is finished. And what is finished? It's not that the ordeal is finished. It's not that his life is finished. It's that his work has finished. His ministry has finished. You notice this is not a phrase of regret, but of satisfaction. That this one who has this sense that his life has been ordained by God in Scripture, and the Scriptures tell us that this, this is a ministry that was necessary from the moment that we, the image of God, exercised our freedom to distrust him in the garden. He had that work then. But even before then, God knew that would happen and this one was the lamb who was slain before the world. It's that plan that is finished. So you can see the sense of deep satisfaction, ironically mixed at this moment, of deep agony, it is finished. God's purposes for the cosmos have come to their pinnacle. This is not a tragedy. This is not a disaster. This is not something to mourn. This is the glory of God himself who fulfills his promises that come from within his heart in the face of the stubbornness and the evil that humanity has concocted. And then he says something absolutely profound. Well, he doesn't say it. He bows his head, his third action, the note of absolute submission, and he gave up the spirit 
The phrase, the spirit, has been used over 20 times in his sermonettes in the previous night. I am disappointed that my version says he gave up his spirit, because that's not the word. He gave up the spirit. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is entirely profound, and this is what marks this experience as absolutely unique. You see, this is a time when he will no longer have need of the spirit, in this moment of dying because the spirit is associated with regeneration and is the one that breathes animation and life and that's not the task here. This is the task of dying. But this is a novel experience for him. We cannot understand what this moment was like because we are accustomed in birth to living without and against the spirit, not him. This one has lived in perfect harmony with God's spirit in eternity, always. It's been his constant experience and joy and encouragement and consolation. This is the one through whom he was born and animated into the world. This is the one who anointed him at his baptism and empowered him with all he needed for his ministry. This is the one who led him into deserts and beyond and, and motivated him and directed him and guided him. This is the one who empowered him to overthrow the forces of Satan. This is the one who inspired him to speak the words that ring true today in our ears. But in death he dies a solitary death. He gives up the spirit. There's no chance of regeneration. There's no consciousness of fellowship. For the first time in his living memory. And this is an incredible act of faith. It is an incredible risk he takes, but that's the nature of faith. He now risks God's wrath unmitigated by the presence of the Spirit. His destruction as the sin bearer, as the propitiation, as the scapegoat for the people's sin. He has to risk that the Father will keep his promises and his soul will not see decay. He has to risk that the Father will not have a change of heart but will follow through and lift him from that grave. He risks that God will not remember his covenant to Israel and to Abraham behind that. That's an incredible amount of faith. He lets go of all that could have sustained him. It's the absolute demonstration of faith. What does this mean? How It's almost audacious that we then put ourselves into this story and ask, what does that mean for me? We can't help doing that. We are incredibly self-centred. We like to be in the frame in the middle of the picture, but this is a frame that is filled with one character. This is his hour. But there are a couple of things we can take from this. 
one just comes through from that little phrase that it is finished. The work of reconciliation is done or the redemption price has been paid in full. Tetelestai. Nothing more to be paid. Any gesture that we might make, even a religious gesture, even a sacrificial gesture, done with the motive of ensuring that it is finished, is actually a contradiction of those words. We do not ever supplement the work of Christ. It is finished. We are passive. We are recipients. The very nature, therefore, of faith is holding out our dirty paws to receive what we have not earned. That's what it is finished means. Isn't it curious that we domesticate this profound, unique event in the cosmos by giving up things for Lent, like chocolate or television? Some even give up exercise, but that's not too much of a cost. (laughs) But that is not the nature of Jesus giving up. His giving up is a risk-trust dynamic. It's a letting go and letting God. Saints through the ages realise that this is the nature of response. That globetrotter from Tarsus puts it so well in Romans 12, 1, where he says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, you know, as this sits on you, this great event, to offer your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice. And that would be a reasonable worship, he's saying. That would be logical. Or, as the great Saint Jim Elliot put it, this risk-trust dynamic is that He is no fool who risks what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or as we just sang by the great hymnist, this one demands my soul, my life, my all. So today, when we come now to the table of memory, It would only be appropriate that as we eat this bread and drink this cup that you spend a moment in silence now and you focus upon those risky things which either are grabbing you or you're still grabbing them as if your life depended on it. But this is a statement of the risk-trust dynamic. And I want you appropriately, logically, reasonably, in the light of Jesus' own faith, to let go of whatever that is. 
Your unfaith is not my unfaith. But that's what it means to come to this table. It's to appreciate the very heart of the gospel. The obedience of the Son to the Eternal Father. Let's be sons and daughters of God then as we come here. I'll give you a moment just to bow your heads in prayer and have him address your soul and sit his demands upon you one more time. Let's bow our heads. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, Lord of Lords, Saviour, we acknowledge in this moment that you are our Master and that we have been caught up in a wonderful plan of God that has invaded human history and then in our time has intercepted our human perception, upset our apple carts, demanded our attention. We come here this morning and as we take these elements that speak of this moment, we simply say, Lord, from hearts that are are submitted to you as your son submitted himself to the Father. We simply say thank you for this Thanksgiving meal. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for the body given totally for us. And we thank you for this blood, this cup, which speaks of your bloodshed and the lengths to which you had to go to redeem us to cover us, to atone for our sins, not your own. For these things we say thank you. In Jesus' name, on this day, amen. I'm going to encourage us, as is often the custom, to, as you're served, uh, to come forward this morning, to down the aisles. I think there's not that many of us at... Uh, Uh, It won't be functional. Uh, Take the bread and take the cup. Um, Eat the bread at your own leisure. Uh, But then we'll hold the cup and we'll drink together as one body this morning.